Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Uh, We like to engage in the reading of the Word here um, in honoring the Scripture, and we stand for that. So will you do that with me? As I read our text this morning, actually found in 1 John chapter 5, um, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Thank you for your respect for the words. You may be seated. There are times when you look at a text and you see words repeat themselves. That's good. It's also good in your relationships, by the way, if uh, the person you're married to or those around you or your kids keep saying the same thing over and over again, it probably is worth listening to. In this particular text, you find a word that repeats itself nine times in just six verses. And you'll see it here. It's highlighted um, in verse six. We see it the first time. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Now, this word testifies is also the word we would call witness or the Greek word martyr or martyr that we get martyr from. So it's a kind of testifying that says, listen, I'll testify this is truth um, even if it costs me my life. Now look at verse 7. For there are, they, there are three that testify. And a little later, same root word down in verse 9, we receive the testimony of men, but the testimony of God is greater and the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And we're not done yet. Look at verse 10. God has the testimony in, uh, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And then a little later, uh, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And finally, that's not enough, one more, verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Now, um, if you've been to a a black church, a church um, where there's African Americans who gather together, I've been to a few of those, um, and I enjoy them immensely. I I visited one in Memphis a number of years ago because I was down there, and I was the only white guy in the entire church, and a part of me was saying, man, I wish we could really, I wish as a white guy I could worship like this, all right? But in a black church, they have a statement that they sometimes make, and it is, can I get a witness, okay? And the there you go, somebody down front's been, been there, okay? And the response is... Amen or yes or something, okay? So we're going to try it. I, I, I know we, we don't really have the ability to do that. We're pretty quiet and reserved here, but we're going to try it anyhow, okay? Can I get a witness? That's not bad for a bunch of white people, okay? okay. It's not exactly like I heard it down there, but it's this idea, right? That when we say, can I have a testimony, can I get a witness? There is excitement behind that affirmation of that truth, okay? 
And that's what this text is saying. The text is saying, listen, this is the testimony. This is can I get a witness kind of stuff. These are demonstrative proofs that Jesus is who he claims to be. Now, the idea, we're going to unpack it with two ideas and and a third, possibly, okay? Two ideas and a third, possibly. Here's the witnesses. The witnesses look at the events and they listen to the voices. Okay, in our text this morning, the witnesses look at the events and they listen to the voices. They look at the events. uh, If you've ever watched uh, a crime show or NCIS or FBI or something like that, you know that those investigators, or if you're an investigator in our midst, uh, those investigators go looking at all the events, gathering forensic evidence, and then they're talking, getting testimonies. And actually, that's kind of what we find in our text this morning, and I'll show you that. We're going to look at the events first. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 6. This is he, that is Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood, these three testify. Now, let me just stop there and explain that if we think of water and we think of blood regarding Jesus, it's pretty clear, I think, that it doesn't take much of an imagination to think in terms of water as his baptism and to think in terms of blood as the crucifixion. So again, John uses this language because he wants the false teacher, those who are under the influence of false teaching, to say, listen, Jesus was fully God, he was fully man, and that demonstrates itself both in his baptism as well as in his crucifixion. So let's take a look at the events. Okay, here we go. Christ's baptism reveals his identity, and his crucifixion reveals our need. Okay? Christ's baptism reveals his identity, and his crucifixion reveals our need. Now, this is great. When you go back into the Gospels, you're going to get a good look at this, okay? Christ's baptism reveals his identity, and his crucifixion reveals our need. Now, there's a lot of places in the Gospel of Luke, for instance, where you might see, like, the wise men or the magi coming to worship Jesus, and you might say, well, that reveals his identity, but it doesn't reveal his identity in a public setting. It's in a more private setting. It's Mary and Joseph see that. Jesus receives the gifts as a toddler. All of that is taking place, revealing that he truly is God's son. But if you want a public setting, the first occurrence of Jesus identified as the son of God in a public setting is going to be his baptism. And I'm going to show you that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Remember, we're looking at water, baptism, blood, crucifixion. These are the events that help us understand who Christ is and how we need him. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. And then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to the Jordan, to John. That is not John the disciple who wrote this epistle and the gospel of John, but rather it's John the Baptist, okay? To be baptized by him, that is John the Baptist. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John said, listen, you may remember later in the gospel of John in chapter 3, verse 30, he says, this my joy is being made full. And in other places, he says, listen, I am not worthy to even untie his shoelaces, okay? This is John the Baptist recognizing that he is not the Christ, right? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John had a was doing baptisms by the hundreds in the River Jordan. And so then John the Baptist consents. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Okay, 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Remember how I said his baptism reveals his identity, but it just doesn't reveal his identity by God the Father who says, this is my son, but it does by the Spirit as well. In fact, uh, the website gotquestions.org, I sometimes use that, helpful. They make this mention. The public baptism of Jesus recorded for all future generations the perfect embodiment of the triune God revealed in glory from heaven. Now, Justin already recommended that this morning that we're singing to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to see here is there's a really good illustration of that right here at the baptism of Christ. The testimony directly from heaven to the Father's pleasure with the Son and the descending of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus is a beautiful picture of the Trinitarian nature of God. It also depicts depicts the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the salvation of those Jesus came to save. The Father loves the elect from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He sends His Son to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. And the Spirit convicts of sin, John 16.8, and draws the believer to the Father through the Son. All the glorious truth of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ is on display at His baptism. Okay? So just for a moment, think about this. If we could have gone back there in a time machine, we would see Jesus walking out into the muddy waters of the Jordan. And, and John the Baptist knows who he is, but the people around don't know. And all of a sudden, this baptism is completely different than any other baptism because the heavens are open, there is uh, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and Jesus from this point forward is communicating with a degree of authority that he didn't, he had before, but he didn't necessarily communicate with before. Christ's baptism reveals his identity. But here's what I want you to see. His crucifixion reveals our need. If anybody ever says, listen, why did Jesus have to die? There's only one good answer to this. And that's because we as sinners were in need of a savior. We as those who were indebted were in need of someone who would pay our debt. That's the only good reason for why Christ would have to die. In fact, 1 Timothy communicates that to us. Paul writing there says, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. In fact, just say that highlighted portion with me. I'll pick up the reading at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that... Christ Jesus came in to the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And the point is this, that even Paul says, listen, in all that I had done, I knew I was a sinner and I needed a savior. So when we say these two things testify, the water and the blood, we're saying the baptism reveals who he is and the crucifixion tells us we need him, right? But there's one more way to look at it as well. Christ's baptism reveals the source of his power, Christ's baptism will reveal the source of his power, and his crucifixion reveals the source of ours, okay? So now, once you've come to faith in Christ, once you've placed your faith in Jesus, something happens. And you may not think you have power, but you do, okay? Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away, behold, the new has come. There is a new man residing, or a new, there's a new man residing in your inner being, and that person has the power and ability to do things through the power of the Spirit that you otherwise couldn't do. We're going to unpack that in a second. But just for a moment, know this. Christ's baptism reveals the source of His power. Now, 
I got to kind of a, a explain this, but we'll go back with me and look at Matthew uh, 3 one more time. For there we read, when he was baptized, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, let me just explain this if I could. Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, is fully God. He is also fully man. But the Bible teaches that when he comes and is born into the human race and he's fully man, he lays aside the independent use of his godlike attributes. You say, what does that mean, okay? He doesn't lose his deity. He doesn't give up his deity at all. But he no longer uses those godlike attributes for himself. And, and that's what we call the kenosis in Philippians chapter 2. Um, he lays that part aside. And I think I can explain that from the Scriptures, but I'm going to show you how we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who's empowering him. You say, couldn't Jesus do it? Absolutely. He was the Son of God. He creates. He can do whatever he wants to do. But when he comes in, human, in, in, in humanity, he lays that part aside. That's why when Satan says to him after 40 days of, tempta- 40 days of fasting, if you're hungry, turn this stone into bread, right? Just turn it into bread. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. He doesn't because he doesn't use his miraculous ability to serve himself. Instead, he waits on God to do it, which is why one of the Gospels records that the angels, he is so impoverished um, and, and dehydrated that the angels come and feed him at that 40-day period. And that's, that's like angelic emergency room service, Okay. He can't even feed himself. Why doesn't he just use his power? Because he specifically laid that aside so that, the Hebrews teaches, he would be tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, which means I'm going to take a line out of your mind and out of your excuse book, okay? Which means you're not allowed to say, I can't do that because Jesus was God and I'm not God. You're not allowed to say, listen, he could stand up against temptation. I can't stand up against temptation because I'm not God. You do understand that Jesus battled temptation not using the God side, but using all the resources that were available to him in his humanity to stand. That's why when he starts quoting scripture in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 to Satan, and you and I face a temptation and we can't find a verse in our head, okay, we're not following Jesus. Now, this is really important because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who empowers him. Could Jesus do this? Absolutely. He could have done any miracle he wanted to. But he waits on the Holy Spirit to do it. And I think I'm going to show you that in a passage you may not have ever thought about this way before. In Matthew chapter 12, you've got this really amazing kind of thing going on. Matthew chapter 12 is where the whole Matthew's gospel just kind of hinges in this passage. The whole thing just changes. In fact, you see it pretty definitively because Jesus starts to speak in parables here. But, but more importantly than that, here's why it changed. There was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute and was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Nobody could deny this. Now, in verse, 20, um, verse 23, he, he, it's, not, it's not there, but, but in verse 23, it says something like this. It says um, that the people said, this could not be the son of David, could it? And and it's a double negative. It literally is the people looking at the religious leaders saying, no, this cannot be the son of David. Like, we don't want it to be the son of David. Because here's how it worked. Everybody loved Jesus as long as he was doing things for them. Okay. And then when he would say things like, follow me, they'd say, hey, you know, we liked it when you fed fish and chips to the 5,000. Okay. 
But right now, like you're asking us to do things. And so the people start to look for ways to not follow him. And right about here, the multitude starts to slide away. And so they look at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees heard it and said, it is only by Bezalel, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Okay, now this is really important. How did the man, how did Jesus release the demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute who was brought to him? You say, well, he's God. He can do what he wants. Yeah, yes, he is. But he's going to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is how I know. Look a little later in Matthew. Knowing their thoughts when they said that, he said to them, no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now look at verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Why did he bring the Holy Spirit into it? Because it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that he had done the miracle. See, this is really important to understand because of what you're about to understand, that you and I are given the same resource that Jesus was given. That's why you can't say, he's Jesus, I can't do, I can't, I can't do that, I can't be victorious, I keep trying and I keep falling to the same sin over and over again. Right? You're not allowed to be discouraged in that because you have the resource of the Holy Spirit like Jesus did. Christ's baptism reveals the source of his power. Now you say, well, Phil, it almost sounds like you're saying he's not God. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when he was here on earth, he laid aside that part and he waited on the Holy Spirit to guide, direct, and empower him to do the miracles. In fact, it's, it's really fascinating. Right after his baptism, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted and fast for 40 days. Like, talk about going from your mountaintop experience to the valley, like, just like that. In fact, it's interesting. Mark uses a different word, not the word led, Mark says that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, which means what? Which means that he was going where in his humanity he didn't want to go, but he followed and submitted to the Spirit. Christ's baptism reveals the source of his power, and his crucifixion reveals the source of ours. That's right. Look at me at Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you and I struggle with a particular temptation or a difficulty, whatever, put it in the blank, whatever you struggle with, when you and I struggle and we say, I can't get over it, there is this incredible, incredible hope that the gospel, Christ loved me and gave himself for me, is sufficient to inspire me to be victorious. Amen. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In fact, I love the way the ESV Study Bible explains this. The person Paul was, because Paul's writing Galatians, before he trusted Christ, with all of his sinful goals, the proud, self-exalting desires, you can put in there some of your own and I can put in there some of mine, came to a decisive end. Galatians 2 says, he died. It is no longer I who live, means his own personal interest and goals no longer direct his life. Rather, Christ who lives in me now directs and empowers all that he does. And that's how it should work for us. It should be us remembering the baptism of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. Why? Because Christ's baptism reveals the source of his power and his crucifixion reveals the source of ours. We've been crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live, but he lives in us. Now, I said there were two witnesses and a third probably, okay? So we're not quite done, but here, let me give you the second set of witnesses. You just gotta listen to the voices. 
Now, in our passage, back in the baptismal passage, in Matthew chapter 3, the Father speaks. But before we get to the Father speaking, just look with me at that passage in 1 John again. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Verse 9, if we receive uh, the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So, I look at that passage and I say, where in the Bible does it give the testimony of men? And God answered that for us, okay? Let's take a look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming after his temptation, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Testimony of man. How about the apostle Peter? When Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Peter responds by saying, um, Peter responds by saying, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, man's testimony. And then we have the Apostle Paul, who says in Acts chapter 9, he is the Son of God. Now, this is a great passage, because here is the Apostle Paul persecuting Christians. He is saved in Acts chapter 9, and one of the first things he does is immediately goes out and starts saying, he's the Son of God, he's the Son of God. Now, he says that in synagogues, which could cost him his life, okay? They could throw him out of the synagogue, they could try to execute him, but Paul's just preaching up a storm on the backside. He is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. But those are man's testimonies, and we are told that God's testimony is greater still. And at his baptism, this is what we hear. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The testimony of God is even greater than the testimony of man. Okay, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Now, I told you there were two witnesses and a third possibly. Because the first two witnesses are looking at the events, okay? We can see that in the scripture, and listening to the voices. Those are witnesses. But there's a third witness here. And it's possible, but it isn't possible if you're not a believer. Here it is. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Which means that when you come to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean you're still not going to stumble and struggle at times, but when you come to faith in Christ, you suddenly know that there is something else in your life, someone else in your life that is enabling you to live for him. It's remarkable, really. If you spent all of your life trying to, to do good works and please God, and you couldn't, you kept falling, what you need to know is there is now one indwelling you who makes it possible. And that's why I say this is the third witness, possibly. This is the third witness for those who are dependent upon Christ. Look at the events, listen to the voices, live the life. Right? Live the Christian life, and you're, there is an inner testimony that you are now able to do something that you never thought you were able to do. And that's why it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Now, let me just pause, because I'm not quite done yet, but... I'm almost done with this portion, okay? Um, let me invite you, if you're online or if you're here, Justin already did that this morning in the communion time. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would say you're missing this last element. You can look at all the evidence you want. You can look at all the events you want. You can even listen to the voices of Scripture. But until you say, I'm going to try this, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ, Jesus said, follow me, I'm going to follow him. Until you do that, okay, you don't have the inner witness working. You don't have the testimony of the fact that there is in you now a Holy Spirit dwelling that allows you to be victorious. But note this. 
And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. You are encouraged, you are charged, you are asked from the Scriptures, from God Himself, to place your faith in Christ. I came up on this statement in my reading this week by Dr. Howard Marshall. It's going to become one of my favorite statements ever, okay? He says, the doctrine of atonement, that is Christ dying in our place, means that God Himself bears our sins and shows, just listen to this language, that the final reality in the universe is His sin-bearing, pardoning love, okay? I love that. Like, take any image you've seen coming off the web telescope, that's not the reality of the universe, okay? That's a foreshadowing. The real final reality, when it's all said and done, is this, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, because God loved us. That's the reality. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're discouraged by, whatever you're fighting, whatever you're worried about, here's the only thing that matters. The final reality of the universe is His sin-bearing, pardoning love. God's character is sin-bearing love. He looks at your needs, he looks at your sin, he looks at your struggle, and he says, I sent my son to reveal to you how much I love you. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill. Hill.